This is Dalio's Principles, a philosophical examination. The unofficial podcast companion for Ray Dalio's book, Principles. This podcast will deeply explore the book and principles. The podcast is hosted by Micah Bays and John Sextro. Micah has a PhD in philosophy and has taught numerous college philosophy courses, including The Meaning of Life, Ethics, and Reason and Argument. John shares his perspective from years of experience trying to live out Ray's principles in his life and work. And you can follow us on Twitter. Micah is at Micah Bays, all one word. And I am at John Sextro, all one word. And now, this week's episode. I'm Micah Bays. I'm John Sextro. We're back again with Dalio's Principles, a philosophical examination. We're starting a new high-level principle today in this episode. We're starting principle three. And Micah, principle three says that we should be radically open-minded. Great. So there's a lot of uh, mid-level principles that go with this one, at least a handful of them. We're going to be tackling the first one in the series. And 3.1 is that mid-level principle says that we need to recognize your two barriers. Micah, what what did you think about this just in terms of it being like a principle? Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think just one thing was, you know, sometimes we think of principles as maybe guides for action or something like that. But in this case, you know, this is just a call to awareness, you might say, to realize that there are a couple of things that can get in our way of success. Again, just putting the whole book in context, right? Ray wants to help us be successful, uh, whatever we take successful to mean. And he's going to say there's two barriers that we can run into or frequently will run into in trying to be successful. So this principle is just calling us to awareness about it, right? It doesn't tell us to do anything per se, but just being aware. Yes. And we've seen this a couple of times before in the book where we, you and I have talked, oh, this doesn't really give us a lot of guidance. It doesn't sound like much of a principle. But uh, Micah, this one seems to set the stage into uh, the future ones related to uh, open-mindedness. And this this first 3.1, recognizing your two barriers, it seems like a nice transition from where we end it in the five-step process, a high-level principle two, understanding the five-step process and working through some of those last things regarding humility. And it seems like that humility part and understanding your shortcomings or your weaknesses transitions nicely into uh, the beginning here of principle three. So, Michael, why don't you tell us what uh, principle 3.1 is all about. Michael, why don't you tell us about the first sub-principle of 3.1, 3.1a from the book? Yeah, so this one is understand your ego barrier. So this is the first of the two barriers, and this one's the ego. And really the emphasis here for Ray is, you know, with our ego, we have this strong desire to be right, or you might even say an even stronger desire to not be wrong. So a lot of times we will, in an attempt at least to not be seen wrong, or at least to uh, not think of ourselves as wrong, we might naturally, you might say, try to avoid criticism. You know, if someone starts saying that, you know, we have an incorrect view on something or we're doing something the wrong way, our initial inclination is to be real dismissive of them and just kind of ignore it, right? I'm sure we've all been in scenarios where 
someone is watching us do something, then they say, oh, you're doing it wrong. And I think most of us, our initial reaction isn't, oh, really? Please tell me more. It's, uh, oh, yes, yes, I am. I'm doing it right. You know, what he's pointed out here is just the fact that we don't want to be wrong. When we avoid criticism or avoid, you know, input from others, that doesn't change the fact as to whether we are wrong or not. You know, if what we're wanting is to ultimately be right or to ultimately not be wrong, avoiding the criticism doesn't help us any because we're still going to see things as we see them. And if we're seeing them incorrectly, then we're still going to be incorrect about it. I I like the way you sort of flipped it on its head a little bit when you said our motivation is that we, I think the traditional thinking is the motivation here is with ego is that you want to be right, but you flipped it and said, maybe it's really a mode. The motivation is not to be wrong. Reminds me of the sports world where you'll hear people say, this team, they're not really playing to win. They're playing not to lose. Uh-huh. <laughs> it made me think of that when you, when you mentioned it that way. Those are really distinct. Those are distinct things like wanting to be right. You might, if you have a desire to be right, you might actually make inroads and in trying to ensure that you're more, uh, more well-read, more knowledgeable about a particular situation. On the opposite end of that, if you look at it from the perspective of wanting to just not be wrong. Well, you cannot be wrong in a lot of ways. One in which one of those ways being not to speak up, not to take any action, not to get involved. So I liked how you did that. I think those are definitely two different things. Right. And actually reminds me of this, this is a bit of a tangent here, but it reminds me of, uh, there's an article by, um, William James. He's a philosopher and a psychologist. Psychologist. He wrote an article called "The Will to Believe." He you know, he later on said probably should have been more appropriately titled "The Right to Believe." And here he was certainly addressing the question of religious belief. More generally, he talked about how you know with respect to truth, you can kind of take two different attitudes. And here you can see some of his psychology coming in. He said, you know, with respect to truth, you could have kind of two different attitudes. One is to say, I want to avoid error at all costs. Right? I don't want to have any wrong beliefs at all. So, of course, the easiest way to do that is to just not believe anything. Now, the other option is to say, and of course, these are two extremes. And so then there's, you know, some, a lot of middle ground between them. But the other extreme is to say, you want to know all truths, right? And so you might say, I'm going to go and I'm going to believe everything. But of course, that's problematic too, because, you know, if you go around believing everything, that means you're probably believing a whole lot of things that are false. Ultimately, there's some preferably happy medium (laughs) in there uh, somewhere. But I just thought that was an idea of, you know, just this idea of, look, if you want to avoid being wrong at all, well, one way to do that is just to not believe anything or... Yeah. And and to never put yourself out there, never go out on a limb, never, never have those, those challenging conversations or engaging engaging in reasonable debate with people, then you won't be, you won't ever be wrong, but there's not a lot productive uh, that can be achieved that way. Right. You miss out on all the gains you could have from yes. gaining truths and believing things. Yeah. I, I think a lot of this, I, I, I've said this before, I think in earlier episodes that we've done is that it's an unreasonably high bar to hold someone to, to hold yourself to, to ever think that, you know, you're not going to be wrong and to believe that you're always going to be right. I mean, if you're, if you're starting with that position, you're, you're wrong already. (laughs) So, um, it's just, it's unreasonable. And I always tell people, I tell a lot of our new employees that I interact with on the job, I say, 
no one is going to ever expect you to around here anyway, no one is ever going to expect you to get it right all of the time or even the first time or even the 30th time. Now, the the what the one thing that we want people to do is to be able to learn and grow. So that to me speaks a lot of the the humility aspect of this principle and this mid-level principle understanding your ego barrier. Uh so you understanding your ego and saying, "Hey, I'm going to be wrong. It's not fun to be wrong, but everybody is wrong from time to time and I should accept that that will happen and look at it as an opportunity to say, oh, and learn something and, and grow in some way. And then with the, with the hope that I do learn and I improve and I have the benefits that come along with that growth, with that opportunity. One way I've heard that summarized, um, what you're saying about around here in our workplace, as far as making mistakes go, is um, it's okay to make mistakes. It's not okay to not learn from them. Exactly. Let's go on to the next sub-principle, which is sub-principle B, and it says, your two yous fight to control you. Aptly, there's a correlation made to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde uh, relating those two things to maybe your prefrontal cortex and and your amygdala and the battle that the uh, the sparring, as it were, as it's mentioned in the book, that those things might do in your mind. And this one, um, this one for me, Micah is, I think I I personally struggle with this one and I feel like my lizard brain, I guess the amygdala side, the reactionary side tends to take, you know, it has a head start always because it's uh, more chemically triggered than, than rationally triggered. And I have to work really, really hard to overcome and work around the reactionary nature of the uh, the flight or fight sort of part of the brain, that amygdala. And, I, you know, this happens to me all the time where it's like, I'm you know, constantly battling with uh, weight and, and such. And, and I'm like, you know, okay, we're not going to eat anything after 8 p.m. That's just a rule. Don't do it. And then 1 a.m., it's like, oh, a cookie would be great. <laughs> and it's like, why does that, how does that ever happen? And it's that constant sparring that seems to be going on. And sometimes, uh, sometimes the rational brain loses out to the emotion. How do you see it? How do you struggle? Do you struggle in any way with these two? I mean, certainly I think I can't imagine there's anyone who doesn't. Um, and I would say I probably struggle with the, um, the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, quite not as much as maybe other people, you know, the joke when I was in college, the joke was that, um, I'm a cyborg, (laughs) (laughs) just, you know, I'm on the thinker feeler distinction, right? If people are aware of Myers-Briggs, you know, I'm definitely a heavy thinker and I had some roommates who were heavy feelers and all logic, you're all logic, less emotion. Right. And, um, of course, maybe lots of illogic, who knows, but, uh, (laughs) But uh, so that said, you know, I, I do think it's probably easier for me to kind of, I'd say, detach myself from the heat of the discussion and to at least attempt to think about it, you know, rationally. But even then, right, um, you know, so my wife and I, we were having a disagreement actually just a couple of days ago. And it was about, you know, effectively a silly thing about around cleaning and stuff. But even then, right, I recognized my own initial response was defensive, right? I didn't want to be wrong. So then I really had to question myself, like, am I 
really trying to view this situation objectively, or am I trying to view it just in a way that makes me look right? Am I focusing on just the facts that support my position or support you know me being done the right? Right, because part of it is you know. Everything that you point out in a discussion could all be true, but it might be that you've selectively picked only those facts that support your position, right? And you ignore the ones that support the other person's position. I just really easily saw that I naturally wanted to just focus on the ones that supported my position. So, and that was, again, just a small thing. So when it's a topic that really matters, just think about how much we have to fight that. Right. One of the tactics, one of the strategies... Micah, that I've used in trying to deal with this is I have a a mindfulness, a meditation practice that focuses on mindfulness that I try to do daily and I don't always do it every day. It's a way for me to try to help introduce a brief moment of time in my mind in which I can center myself in a high stakes conversation, in a crucial conversation, in a difficult situation, just giving me enough time. Uh, for the adrenaline to pass, for for the emotion to uh, sort of start to subside, and for the the reasoning side of the brain, the rational side of the brain to sort of catch up with the emotional side so that I don't have an emotional reaction, an inappropriate emotional reaction, so that I can consider both rational and re- reason as well as emotion into a situation and into a decision rather than just being purely motivated by by emotion or even maybe you you might consider at some point being motivated purely by by reason by logic i try to do that it's something i i believe strongly in i i feel like it is a, a way for me to help get a bit of a, a bit of perspective and a bit of distance if you will uh in in a conversation like that so that i can return to to reason and rationality are there any tactics that you have found that are helpful for you um, aside from like mindfulness and meditation that you've tried to employ? Uh, I can't, I don't know that I can say that there's yeah, any particular tactics that I have. I mean, I definitely know just internally, I will start to ask myself, what is it I'm wanting to do here, right? Am I trying to focus on the facts? Am I trying to just defend myself? Frequently, that can work well enough that I start doubting my own belief about the facts about what happened or what led up to a situation. And if there are things that I think support my position, I might start questioning myself like, oh, well, was it really that way? But yeah, so no specific tactics, I guess, reflection in the moment, or I think, you know, I think kind of, as you mentioned, maybe stepping away from the conversation for a time to just kind of cool off. And then, you know, you can think about it a little bit more level-headedly, if you will. Yeah. And, and taking, um, you know, stepping away from a situation is always a, especially if you're getting emotional is a great idea. And I, I don't even mean, I don't even mean stepping away in a lot of cases. I, I just mean a second or even maybe a half of a second where you can sort of start to feel, you, you feel that you feel Mr. Hyde <laughs> starting to break through the barrier, but all you, all it takes is in a lot of cases, all it takes is a half of a second or a second even to let the so, sort of let that adrenaline pass a little bit and for your rational mind to sort of catch up to where you can go okay it's it's not so bad you don't have to overreact just don't even have to react at all we can just we can we can deal with this we can figure it out we can work through it and and uh, that's what I try that's where I try to uh, get to 
we started, I sort of, sort of, um, have related here that I can struggle with this and you might consider that to be a blind spot. Some people anyway, might consider that to be a blind spot, but in order for it to be a blind spot, sort of have to uh, not know about it. I think that's, that's sort of the reason it's called a blind spot is because we, we don't know about it or maybe we, maybe we know about it, but um, it sneaks up on us. There's, there's something about our personality, maybe Mike, maybe even our character, um, our intellect, our wisdom, our knowledge, that's, that's a blind spot. And um, we're, we're not, you know, we're not compensating for it well. So that's really what the next sub level principle is about from Ray here. He says that we need to understand our blind spot barriers. I want to bring you back in on this one, Mike, and, and, and talk some more about it. We have been, it feels like building up uh, in a lot of ways through the early parts of this book, talking about things that are very much relevant to blind spots, you know, where are your weaknesses, et cetera. Um, and there was an analogy, I think, I can't remember what it was, but that Ray used in this particular chapter to talk about blind spots. Do you remember what that was? Yes. I think this is where he was talking about with color blindness. <clears throat> so you know, just with the idea of a lot of people are unaware that they have blind spots, you know, they have a blind spot to their blind spot. But he says, you know, you take color blindness, right? We can easily see how, you know, in this sense, someone has a blind spot as insofar as you know, there's certain colors they can't see. It's not as though they're doing anything wrong. It's just the way their, I guess, eyes are made up that they're not, they're unable to see things that other people are able to see. And so likewise, you know, there are certain blind spots that each of us have insofar as how we view things. There are things that we are unaware of that other people are aware of. Um, and so that's where it can be, you know, helpful to have other people around who see things differently than you do, who can help you become aware of your blind spots. That, that must be quite a um, revealing moment for someone who's colorblind when they, when they have the cognition that, and make the realization that, oh, that's somebody, other people see this differently than I do. Right. Have you seen some of the videos where people are putting on these kind of new glasses that enable colorblind people to see color? Right. Right. I think I have seen one of those. Some of those people are just, you know, they're extremely emotional, you know, in response to it, right? They just start crying, just, you know, amazed at how much color they had been missing out on. It's almost like there's a certain part of reality that they were missing that has now just been revealed to them. And I guess in a certain way for us and with, for anyone with a blind spot, it's the same thing where you weren't cognizant of this before. And that's why it's a blind spot. And now you're becoming aware of it. You're, you're helping, being helped to see through the color blindness, if you will, and uh, are, are revealed, are having this reveal to this part of you or this thing about you that you weren't, uh, you weren't very tuned into previously. So that, that's, that's, I'm sure, a, a very emotional, it can be emotional, as you said, in terms of how people have reacted to be going from not being able to see these colors to seeing the colors. I could see that being also uh, an emotional thing for someone to realize, Hey, I didn't realize that I tend to get angry uh, when people challenge me or whatever their blind spot might be. We operate the podcast on the value for value model. We're entirely listener supported. If you enjoy the podcast and find value in the information and entertainment you receive, Visit our website 
at daliosprinciples.fireside.fm slash donate. You can also help us grow by promoting us on social media. So get out there and tell all of your friends about the podcast and help us spread the word. And now back to the show. Yeah, you know, this talk about blind spots um, and you know, kind of ways trying to help us be aware of our blind spots reminds me of you know when I was teaching philosophy, most of my philosophy students weren't there because they wanted to be there. Most of them were there because it fulfilled a requirement. So there's certainly some apathy in some of the students. So to try to get them interested in philosophy, and in particular, one of the classes I would teach, we would talk about, you know, what what is the good life? To try to get them to not be apathetic, to be genuinely interested in the question. You know, I think I had to work against maybe this prevailing idea that all ways of life are good ways, right? Because if that's true, then, well, every life that each student is living would be a good life, right? There's maybe presumably no way to improve your life, right? If, if every way is a good life, then some might draw the conclusion that every way is just as good of a life. So to try and get them to maybe at least question that, I would ask them, do they know of anyone who they think is living a bad life and is unaware that they're living a bad life, right? And I'm sure certain particular people, maybe from high school or from college, uh, would pop up in their minds, people who think you know they frequently are making very bad decisions, and yet that person thinks they're making good decisions. You know, after I'd have them go through that mental exercise, I would then say, well, how do you know you're not that person, right? How do you know you're not someone who thinks you're making the right decision, but you're actually making wrong decisions? And so that was just a different way I was trying to help them be aware of maybe their blind spot. What was the general reaction to the to that question of how do you know you're not making bad decisions? Uh, I don't know if I can remember. I mean, I think for some people it clicked as far as, oh, okay, yeah, maybe so. But I don't know there was ever some like eureka moment for them, at least as far as you know what they told me. I mean, who knows, maybe when they left the classroom, they had some conversations with their friends or something about it. But So that's, a, that's exactly what I was hoping you, you maybe were going to go or where you were going to go with this was because... In dealing with blind spots, you know, the it's almost like the first thing that you have to do is find some way to get some visibility to it. That that's fundamentally what this is all about. And and if you can at least have uh, the wisdom to admit to yourself that there might be blind spots that you have, just making that statement, right? Sort of like you're saying with, um, are you making the good? the good decisions, the best decisions are, are you possibly making poor decisions? You have to first be willing to consider, to consider the case where you might be the one that's making the bad decisions, just like you were trying to lead your students to understand. Similarly for us, looking at our blind spots, first thing we have to be willing to do is to admit, I might have blind spots. You know, once we admit that to ourselves, Ray is helping us out here in the book and and saying, so, you know, there's some things you can do. And again, none of these are going to be surprises to anyone, especially those that are reading along with us. But these are things, again, that have been common themes throughout the book. So we can go through them, just, you know, go through them here sort of quickly, Micah. But when we're dealing with our blind spots, the one of the, there's, there's a couple of things we can do. The first one being, well, I can, now that I realize it and I see that there's a better way or, or that the you know I didn't realize I was doing this, so I can stop doing it. Or I didn't realize that I was not doing a thing, and now I can try to do that thing. So that's learning. That's figuring out. Okay, I have a blind spot, acknowledging it, and finding a way to improve ourselves so that we can 
do something that doesn't come naturally to us. And so that helps us deal with the blind spot. Micah, also, we've talked about, you know, compensating. I think the, I think an actual, an example that you gave previously was if you're bad at being on time to something, you could compensate for that by setting an alarm or setting a reminder. And that's actually, a, again, one of those compensating uh, ways to compensate for an area where you have a blind spot. And then finally, and this is, you, you started to allude to it, Micah, when you were talking about the exercise you were having your students do, was um, collaborating with others and asking them, what could I do? Asking them to help you also find out where your blind spot is. And then if, you know, you just can't get good at it, you, um, you can't find a way to automate yourself out of, out of it, uh, automate your life in some way to compensate for it with some other compensating action, then maybe you're asking people to help you by filling in a gap. So you find somebody that's strong in an area where you're weak, and then you ask them to help you in those areas. So, Mike, do you think I've missed any? What do you think about the, those three ways to try and deal with blind spots? I think you've covered it as far as I don't know that I have anything to add there. I think it's difficult. It can be very difficult. I think you can do these things entirely on your own. And in a lot of cases, people might want to do that. They're, maybe their ego is getting in the way. But if you can let your ego down and reach out to others to help you, then you can start to introspect more um, by, by getting feedback and coaching from others and thinking more deeply about where you might have blind spots and starting with simply admitting to yourself, hey, it's, there's a high likelihood <laughs> that I have a blind spot. And I'm going to talk to my peers, my coworkers, my boss, my friends, my family, and find out where do they think I have a blind spot? How could I improve? Yeah, actually, now that you talked about this, it reminds me, I have been doing uh, some reading on group discussion. Um, so what I'm thinking about right now is for people who are leaders, and so far we've been talking about raised principles here largely in terms of like our personal and professional life, but how it affects us personally and how do we fix our own blind spots as far as you know, the decisions we make as an individual. For people who are leaders, there's also a question about when they're leading, let's say, their team or their business, they might have blind spots in as far as business decision-making goes. One question might be, well, how could they improve their blind spots? And I was reading an article by Cass Sunstein. Hopefully, I'm pronouncing that right. Have you heard of the book Nudge? I have not heard of the book Nudge. Okay. So it's written by Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler, who are... Thaler is a um, behavioral economist, I think. Anyways, Thaler uh, won a Nobel Prize, and Cass Sunstein was uh, a co-author of that book. I mentioned that book only just because I thought some people may have heard of it. But Cass Sunstein wrote this other book called Wiser, um, and the subtitle is something like Making Dumb Groups Smarter. And what interests me about the book is he talks about how there are a lot of occasions in which a group that deliberates about a topic is more likely to come to a worse decision than if just a single individual had made a decision about that same topic. He goes in to talk about a lot of the kind of psychological factors that go into how groups interact and how that causes a bad decision to result. So one of them is what he calls a reputational cascade, where you know, if the leader starts off a meeting 
giving their viewpoint of, hey, this is the direction we should go. Here's the decision we should make. A lot of people are going to start to kind of silence themselves, not because the leader has told them to, but just because they're worried that, oh, I have a different opinion than what the leader has said. I don't want to look bad. And it may not even be a conscious decision, just at least subconsciously that affects them. And so they're less likely to participate, less likely to share their thoughts. And so the problem here, of course, is that there are going to be people at this meeting who have information that might reveal that a better decision can be made than the one the leader wants to make. But those that information isn't going to come out because of that reputational, what he calls cascade. And so one of the advice he gives to make this less of a problem is for leaders to silence themselves in a group meeting. Let the other people contribute to this to the topic, share what they think the decision should be. And then at the end, he could then give his input. Um, but at least that way, more information will get on the table and then you have a better chance of you know, getting to the right decision or the better decision. So as far as you know, dealing with blind spots, I was just thinking you know, for leaders, that may be something they want to think about when they're making decisions with their teams. They may want to silence themselves. I actually mentioned this to my tech lead a couple of weeks ago, and we had a team meeting uh, earlier this week, and I noticed he wasn't talking as much. And after we had the meeting, he pulled out his watch and he showed me, he's like, look, I gave myself two minutes you know, before I would join in on any topic so that other people would start talking first. That's great. You know, I think that previously in the book, Ray talked about this as well, talked about this um the cast, what did you call it? The hierarchy, cascading hierarchy? Uh, the reputational cascade. Uh, reputational cascade, right. Um, he, he did He did address this and, and mentioned that this is a thing that can occur. So obviously very much in alignment with uh, which, what you're mentioning here, Micah. You know, his tactic, as I recall, was not not to have these leaders or those people that are further up in, you know, quote unquote, the food chain, the hierarchy than you are uh, to be silent, but more that there, you know, there should be debate and that there should be clear ground rules set that everyone is sort of has equal opportunity to speak, to be heard. But it seems really hard uh, just from a, from our DNA, like how we're put together as humans, that it seems like there's a lot of a lot of hierarchy that has gone into uh, thousands of years of evolution for us <laughs> that our brains are very hardwired to check for, look for, um, and react to. And so I think that there's, there's a lot to be said for leaders leaving space uh, for the people in their organizations to engage prior to the leader weighing in on something. I see that, see that quite often where um, a, a leader can start things off with a very strong opinion or a, a statement of opinion or a statement of what they consider fact. And then that can quickly shut a conversation down as opposed to holding that back or putting it out to the, the, the pool of knowledge, to the, the collective pool of knowledge with the group and saying, tell me what's wrong about this. You know, help me help poke holes in this look at where my my reasoning my logic is faulty so that i can make this better you know taking that approach as opposed to anchoring a group with well it seems like the best way to solve this is my solution what do you guys think <laughs> I mean, that's a really <laughs> poor way to start a conversation like that right yeah it's not really encouraging too much discussion 
And in fact, you know, what you talked about, um, as far as the leader encouraging dissension, if you will, or disagreement, that was another tactic that Sunstein recommended was, you know, I think he called it priming the pump, uh, just in so far as telling people that you want to hear their thoughts and you want to hear their disagreements, the pros and the cons. Obviously, right, if you tell people that, but then your behavior is to shut down everything people says, right, that can uh, you know, negate any positive effect of priming the pump. Absolutely. And Micah, in the past, you've been a proponent and spoken about um, decision mapping. Do you see any opportunity for uh, decision mapping to enter into consideration here? Yeah, I, I think definitely. You know, so decision mapping, um, I won't go into expl- explanation here, but you know, roughly you do see a white kind of on a whiteboard or a computer screen, you know, just a listing of possible solutions. Then underneath those solutions, people are going to list the pros and cons of the solutions. And they also might list what they see as the evidence for those pros and cons. And if you know, a leader were to use that decision mapping process, I think it makes it pretty clear that he's looking for genuine discussion, genuine disagreement about a topic. And you know, one of the things Ray says is, you know, the result of both of the barriers we've been talking about, the ego barrier and the blind spot barrier, result of both of those that disagreements, people, parties in a disagreement typically remain convinced they're right, right? Because their ego gets in the way and because they just, even if they wanted to see things differently, they can't on their own. One of the benefits of decision mapping is that it encourages you to ask, well, what is the evidence that other people have for their views. In using decision mapping, I've definitely seen that resolve disagreements because people didn't realize why people held the decision they did and then or held the position they did. And then when they saw that, they were like, oh, okay, I understand that. I didn't realize that. And then they actually came to an agreement. Doesn't work all the time by any means, but it certainly can. Great. That's, I think, helpful to folks to uh, continue to consider how they might apply decision mapping in uh, in real ways in their everyday life and certainly as a way to help consider um maybe maybe they can use it when they're making considerations about who who could help them maybe with uh their weaknesses or who's strong in something and and who's weak in something maybe using a help may, taking a look at a decision map to sort of factually and objectively look at um the circumstances without being unfairly anchored by someone else's uh position within within an organization or within any sort of community body. Right. And as I say, if anyone has, you know, any listeners have questions about decision mapping, what it is and resources on it, you know, I'd be glad to help them with that. Um, it's certainly one of my passions right now is decision mapping. And uh, I could kind of point them in the right direction for some resources. They can, of course, find me on Twitter, Micah.Bays, which I know that's mentioned at the end of the podcast too. So it's always worth a second mention. All right, Micah, we are going to wrap it up there. We've got our our start now on being radically on principle three, which says that we should be radically open-minded. And Ray's helped us by preparing us to recognize our two barriers, our ego barrier, our blind spot barrier, recognizing that we've got these two U's that are fighting for control within us. And uh, we'll be we'll be going a little deeper on this again in our next episode as we'll, uh, we'll read up on Ray's advice on how to actually practice radical open-mindedness. So read up on Mid-Level Principle 3.2, and we'll see you back here next episode. Thanks, Micah. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening. Let's keep the conversation going on our subreddit, Dalio's Principles at reddit.com. The subreddit is Dalio's Principles, all one word. 
Join us to interact with a community of like-minded individuals.